Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day folks and welcome to another episode of Encounters Down Under. Multi-award winning investigative journalist Ross Coulthard joins the show to tell us about his experiences whilst researching UAPs for his TV documentary The Phenomenon and his new release book In Plain Sight. So please welcome to the show Ross Coulthard. G'day, how are you Ant? Good mate, and yourself? I'm very well, very very well. Oh that's uh, great mate. This is my first time on, first time on your show and I, I have to admit I, uh, I, I haven't listened to it before but I will be. Oh, mate, by all means, it'll do. <laughs> the more people, the better for me. That way we can sort of, like, you know, we get um, more people out there and, you know, sort of getting a bit of a realisation of what things are actually going around there. So uh, what's, tell me a little bit about your, uh, your audience. Uh, are a lot of them people who've seen things? Yes, I believe a lot of them are, or people that are actually curious, you know. Um, they, um, you know, they've always seen something or they might have something that is reasonably questionable. You know, then they, they sort of come to us and sort of, you know, ask the question, is this a UFO or is it something that could have been mistaken as a UFO? And everyone's got different opinions and that's the biggest thing we want. We want people's opinions and what they think it could be. Um, there are a few things there where people sort of mistaken thing for misidentification, such as like a lens flare or they see the Venus in the sky or the International Space Station going across. But, you know, that's basically pretty much what we're all about. You know, if see something in the sky is a bit weird, then by all means they come forward and just about what they've seen, but um, yeah. yeah what, well, what about yourself? I, 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 I've never seen anything. I've never seen oh, a wow. UAP or a UFO. Uh, I've got plenty of friends who have. I've been present when um, Damien Knott, for example, the Australian uh, cinematographer who films the phenomenon quite often, has recorded really interesting anomalous material. And uh, I, I guess, though, as a sort of an objective journalist, I'm not really too fussed about that because for my purposes, what I'm interested in is the fact that we're now in an era where there's a paradigm shift, where uh, for years, people like yourself who claim to have seen things in the sky have been told, you're crazy or you're mistaken. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's, it's weather phenomena. It's anomalous misidentifications of aircraft you know you're, you're just confused it's a lenticular cloud and the reality is it's never made a huge amount of sense to me as a journalist because over the years I've seen videos and photographs and witness reports coming into news media organizations and there's a consistency to them and a reliability to the veracity of the witnesses that that makes me 
have cause for pause. And I've always wanted to do a dig. I've always wanted to have the time to sit back and go, okay, what's this UAP? What's this UFO thing all about? And I went into it very, very sceptical, thinking what I was going to find was that maybe our military was testing American technology, or maybe what we see in America all the time is American aerospace technology. And the interesting thing about it is the more I go down the rabbit hole, the more I'm persuaded that it's definitely not American, Russian or Chinese technology. It's, it's technology that's far beyond what we have or what is known. And uh, frankly, even though it's a controversial thing to assert, uh, you know, there are people telling me from within defence departments, from inside intelligence services, that we need to seriously consider the possibility that there is some form of intelligence that is engaging with humanity that it is not known to humanity. And uh, I'm not excluding the possibility, by the way, that it's not still human. Uh, and I'm also not excluding the possibility that it's intra-terrestrial rather than extra-terrestrial. Yeah. Maybe it's always been here. Maybe we're the interlopers. But uh, I think the you know I've, I've been privileged. You know I've I've used my inquis my curiosity. I've 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 spoken to an enormous number of people, hundreds of people in very senior positions in some cases in foreign governments. And they admit to me that this is a real phenomenon. And whenever I get lambasted by debunkers, uh, there was one little twerp called Jason Colavito who took a swipe at me on Twitter today. And I just ignore them because the reality is they're irrelevant to the debate because what, what infuriates them, I think, is that the Pentagon, the U.S. Defense Department, has now admitted that this is real. That's right. Uh, you know, it's admitted that it really is a mystery. And so we're in entirely new territory at the moment. And it's quite fascinating because um, in many ways, the debate has gone through a quantum leap. Uh, you know, we're, we're no longer arguing about whether it's misidentifications of things in the sky. That's not plausible. And in many ways, as uh, Michio Kaku, the... Um, uh, commentator in the United States has said uh, the onus of proof is fast falling onto the debunkers and the skeptics because the evidence now is overwhelming that there is a real phenomenon and frankly we in the media have dropped the ball in not taking it seriously for the last 76 years. Yeah see I've even seen reporters there where they're even taking the mickey out of people they were telling their experiences and there's even the media hasn't taken it seriously. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, the media uh, generally has a default position of ridicule, of stigma and taboo attached to the subject of UAPs. And it's interesting because I think a lot of us in the media have glibly accepted that for a while. We've gone, oh, yeah, well, that's normal. You know, we should treat UFOs with scepticism. And, and we should. I mean, yeah. I think you would agree with that. And so would your listeners. Absolutely. But what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't greet it with ridicule. And, you know, I, I, I think the turning point for me was 
I did a story for the Channel 7 Sunday night program that some of your viewers might remember back in 2009. And um, it was kind of an accident it happened, really. The boss, the editor of the program, was desperate for another story because we'd had something fall through and I was in the United Kingdom. And he said, what about that that weird flying saucer story you've got? And I went, oh, you mean the Rendlesham story up in Suffolk, RAF Bentwaters, RAF Bentwaters base in 1980? I said, yeah, I could probably put that together. And uh, it was really interesting because not only was it a compelling story, uh, the the good thing for a commercial TV network is that it rated its socks off. You know, people were really interested in the phenomenon. And we were absolutely swamped for, for weeks afterwards with people contacting us saying that uh, they'd seen things and they were excited that finally there was a mainstream media outlet that was actually engaging with this issue in a non-sensationalised way. Yeah, that would have been amazing. And, um, it, it, it really was. It was quite extraordinary. At one stage, the Channel 7 reception were telling me, we used to, in the good old days, when you had phone operators who would answer the phones for the yep. network, they were telling me they were getting so many calls, they couldn't deal with the other calls that the TV network needed. And so oh, I, was a bit, I, was a bit anno- I, was, I was a bit annoying for them for a while because there was just so much information coming in the door. But what blew me away was there were people all over Australia. We'd done a story that dwelt in particular on the sightings of black triangles all over Western Europe and the United Kingdom. And there was a night of the black triangles in 1983 that we focused on over Wales. And uh, there was an RAF pilot, a British Air Force pilot, who told us how he'd chased one of these objects and seen a craft, a solid metallic object that was tracked on radar. And the amazing thing, I think, for all of us, frankly, was that we went into it as journalists. I was part of a team of a producer, myself as a reporter, and a cameraman and a sound man. And the great thing about that kind of relationship is when you come back at the end of the day and you sit in the pub or you have a meal and you sit and talk about what you've shot, we were all totally confronted by the witnesses we'd spoken to because these were highly credible people. I can remember one of the guys we went to interview in Cheshire uh, in Northwest England was an RAF wing commander. He was a former wing commander for the Royal Air Force. He'd flown tornado bombers. And this guy was oozing credibility, but he was happy to tell us over a beer in a Cheshire pub that he'd seen a metallic overloid slightly spherical object tracking at thousands of kilometers an hour on his radar and then he'd seen the thing before it went out of sight and uh, it changed his life completely and oh, as i often find when i when i talk to people it it really does it changes people's lives it's uh, and it's infuriating i think because um I I think there is still a stigma in the media. There is still ridicule attached to the subject. And I frankly don't think that's justified. And uh, I I think it's time that the media started engaging seriously with the phenomenon because whatever it is, okay, there are a few fraudsters and there are a few pranksters, but by and by, it's real. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing because um, like, these things are seen worldwide. 
where all the public, everything's going on, and people are reporting these things and still never got taken seriously, which is, yeah, like you're saying. It's funny, I, um, I did an interview with uh, a Spanish newspaper uh, two or three days ago, and they sent me the PDF of the final article that went into their newspaper. And um, I spoke to the editor this evening, and he told me that they have been absolutely swamped with people interested to hear more, relating their experiences, talking about events that they've never spoken about before. And it's fascinating because I, I knew that would happen. And when I made my documentary, the, the, the UFO phenomenon that, uh, by the way, anybody can watch on YouTube, uh, it's on the Channel 7 Spotlight section on YouTube, the UFO phenomenon. And uh, when I made that film, I kind of had a hunch that it was going to be popular, but it's gone through several iterations now on YouTube because we keep on having technical issues. But basically, we're well into the four to five million views now, which is quite extraordinary for for a public affairs television program. And I'm getting messages from all over the world. I, I've had Russians, Chinese, French, Germans, Italians, Spaniards, Brits, Americans, lots of Americans, Canadians. People from all over the world are sending me their experiences, That's including incredible. A, a, original video, original uh, uh, photographs of what they've seen. And... Uh, I, I feel an enormous responsibility, frankly, to do justice to what people are sharing with me. But at last count, I think I had over 20,000, I say it again, 20,000 emails and messages in my servers. That's And I just can't keep up. <laughs> I imagine yeah, you're the so secretary. Uh, my wife actually has been offering, but um, <laughs> she... Uh, I, I've said to her, but you wouldn't know which ones to take seriously and which not. But, um, yeah. you know, the reality is I, I try and go through each individual one, but it's very, very hard. Very time-consuming, especially away from day job. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm privileged because uh, uh, at the moment I'm freelancing as a journalist. I've written this book, and so I'm publicising my book, which is called In Plain Sight, an investigation into UFOs and impossible science. And the uh, the uh, publicity tour for the book's still ongoing. I've I've just been doing all the promotions for the UK and doing an awful lot of British podcast interviews. And um, I'm now starting the American interviews because the American version of the book's coming out in about uh, two or three weeks. Oh, that's awesome! And um, al- already there's a, a a huge volume of interest and to be honest with you I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed by it to be honest because I I, I don't see myself as a ufologist I'm not an activist ufo researcher I'm I'm just a journalist I'm I'm somebody who's taking the phenomenon seriously as we should yeah and and the thing that I think has surprised a lot of people is I I'm engaging with it like I would engage with any story which is to take it seriously and to look for data and to weigh that data and then to assess it. And uh, it, it's really interesting because I was honestly expecting to find reasons to be sceptical. Uh, and there are reasons to be sceptical about some things. You know, when people send me fuzzy videos, there's not a lot I can do with them. No, because and a lot of people don't understand that either. I, 
Yeah, and uh, so there was a lovely guy. Uh, you know, he's gone back and taken my advice. So he's got a, a very big telescope, and he he was showing me images that he'd shot on video of a deep space object or a D S O, as he coined it. And okay. uh, the images are quite extraordinary, and and they show an object that's moving through outer space, and then it changes course and direction at enormous speed and he's got three separate videos of this and uh, he said what do you advise I do with it and I said well look whatever happens it's it's really not evidence per se because you know the, the the only way to really determine the provenance would be to have like an independent witness with you when you're shooting them and to to have the uh, the position in space independently verified by by somebody, and then if you like to have a chain of evidence on the on the data on the video. Uh, but I said, you know, the least you could do is go away and um, figure out are there any satellites or or um, known space vehicles from this planet yeah. that are in that area of space, and uh, you know, are there uh, asteroids or any other uh, space objects that might explain the phenomenon. And so he's gone away to do that. Yep. But um, the reality is, as you and I both know, um, fuzzy, blurry pictures of objects are never really going to prove anything. No, unfortunately. Uh, neither, frankly, neither is witness evidence. And And the interesting thing to me is that what's really changed the debate in Washington is that the Americans who I'm sure frankly have been concealing something about the phenomenon for many many years the 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 Americans are now caught by the brilliance of their technology because since 2004 when the USS Princeton started using the spy one radar system to particular efficacy, the spy ones have been around for a while, but they're a, they're a type of phased array radar system where in, instead of using the old clock face style of radar where it swishes around a screen every few seconds and you get a blip, this is a pulse that's beamed out like a laser beam and it, it allows you to interpret an object and indeed discern a whole lot of information about it that you would not normally be able to discern with a standard radar return. Yeah, I think that's what gives like a 3D imaging, isn't it? It's incredible. I've I've seen in classified controlled container situations, I've seen what they can actually do. And you can pretty much with the combined sensor systems that they have on the F-18 jets these days, and particularly on the E-2 Hawkeyes and and also on the guided missile destroyer, the USS Princeton, that was operating in 2004, you can literally see the rivets. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And, and the computer database tells you, before you've even thought about it, what craft it is. You know, is it a Russian MiG? Uh, is it a Zukoi? You know, what is it? And um, the interesting thing that day is that the databases that were on the USS Nimitz, the USS Princeton, and every other ship in the carrier battle group that was operating off Baja, California in 2004 when the USS Nimitz, the supercarrier, was doing its warm-ups for the Middle East, nothing 
could tell them on their computer systems what these objects were. And I, I can tell you, it's quite freaky to talk to somebody like Kevin Day, who was the senior chief in the US Navy, who was responsible for monitoring the combat weapons system on board the USS Princeton. And he told me that he'd been seeing on his screen for days, for about seven or eight days, they've been seeing these weird anomalous objects that were hovering at 80,000 feet or above that were completely unknown to them. And, and because the radar ceiling of the particular radar system is 80,000 feet, and because of other information that I can't talk about, Kevin's pretty sure that these objects, some of them at least, were in orbit, which is profound because what he says was that instantaneously at one point, objects that were at that 80,000 feet or above height, probably in orbit, instantaneously descended to a whole series of different heights, some of which were within the operating range and uh, envelope of the carrier battle group. And that was the turning point because he could then scan them with his radar and he could see they were real. They weren't some optical illusion. They weren't some anomalous atmospheric phenomenon, some lenticular cloud or some a radar signal that was in the side of the at least. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. This is why we're now in this new scenario. And I think in many ways, it's kind of reluctantly that the United States military is being dragged, kicking and screaming, I think, into an admission of what we suspect, I know, has been going on for probably 75, 76 years. Yeah. You know, an admission that this genuinely is a mystery. You know, there really is a mystery. And, and the United States Pentagon, the Department of Defense, has admitted this formally in a report to Congress that out of 144 specific sightings incidents since 2004, I don't know why they chose that date, but I suspect they've got their reasons. 143, like all but one, were unexplained. And these are sightings where prosaic explanations have, in the main, been excluded. So it's not drones. It's not weather balloons. It's not anomalous uh, atmospheric phenomena. You know, there's nothing known to human science which can adequately explain what it is that these U.S. Navy pilots have been seeing. And that's the shift. That's the big change that's happened here. Because whereas before it's been possible for the military, as they glibly did during Project Grudge and Project Blue Book and all the other investigations that have been done by the American government and the Australian government and the British government over the years, we've always been told these objects can in the main be largely explained away as misidentifications. You know, these people are a little bit crazy that see UFOs. You know, they're all Fruit Loops. And, um, and in the main, it can all be adequately explained. And most importantly at all, it's no threat to national security. Well, the steaming train of US Navy sightings hit that arrogant assumption for six earlier this year because all of a sudden the US military 
formally admitted, and this seems to have been ignored by most of the skeptics, the US military formally admitted that it could not explain 143 out of 144 of these sightings. And more importantly, the other concession it made was a complete backflip to what's been asserted by all militaries in Western Alliance since the end of Project Blue Book in 1969. They flatly admitted that this is a potential threat to national security. And they also admit that, 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 that there's a flight safety issue posed by the threat that these objects pose. Because in some cases, I mean, I've spoken to some of these pilots, these objects, whatever they are, they're solid. And in one case, I've spoken to the people involved, there were two fighter planes flying probably no more than 30 to 50 feet apart at high altitude. And all of a sudden, one of these objects zooms between them at hypersonic speeds, almost instantaneous movement. If it had hit one of those planes, those young men would be dead. Oh, it would have been catastrophic. So there is a flight, yeah, so there is a flight safety issue here, and, and this is the issue, and this is why we're in such new territory here, because it's a complete game-changer. And you've got the sceptics, for once, floundering, because... You know, every now and then you get one of them saying, oh, it was just a seagull or, you know, you know, it was just a cloud, you know, and these sceptics are saying that, you know, even the pilots must be confused and that pilots really, after all, aren't very good witnesses. But what they're ignoring, and this is what I've had briefings about from people in a very senior position in the US military, what they're ignoring is that these individual witness sightings by human eyeballs are corroborated by multiple independent radar and atfleur imaging and optical sensor systems, the most sophisticated sensor systems on the planet. These jets cost over $100 million for Australia to buy in Aussie dollars. They are packed to the gunnels with the best new technology, including the phased array radars. And it may not surprise you to know, Ant, that... Um, There are Australian pilots, both commercial and military, who are contacting me confidentially and telling me that they're also seeing these objects, that Australia is enjoying its fair share of anomalous sightings of weird phenomena. Yeah, I believe it. So, yes, we really are in a new paradigm here. Things are changing dramatically by the day. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's this massive breakthrough now that we've finally come through and it's finally getting taken seriously, which we've all been asking for for so many years now and finally got it. <laughs> but um, my biggest issue is, um, like, we've got the, the footage there from the military there with their Nimitz, um, uh, the Tic Tac and the Go Fast and all sort of stuff. Now, uh, you have spoken to um, the radar officer, I've forgotten his name now. Um, but you were speaking to Kim some of the... Day? Kevin Day, yeah, it's him. Yeah, now, you're speaking to yeah, a couple he's of one of the people. I've, sp- I've spoken to about 20 people from that incident. Yep. Okay, so can you explain to me with that, because my biggest issue with this is like they've only given us about 30 seconds worth of clips here and there, but where's the rest of the clips? Where's the whole scenario? Where's that brief? Okay, you, you'll recall that there's a guy called Lou Elizondo, Louis yep. Elizondo, who until... Uh, 2016, uh, 2017, he was the head of the um, the Pentagon's secret UFO investigations, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And Elizondo's 
kind of like a spook from central casting. He's a former counterintelligence officer in the US military. And he served in Afghanistan with Australian special forces. They all know him really well and they vouched for him as a man of high integrity and great repute. And uh, he basically uh, has told me in interview that there are many other videos that he's been privy to, but which under the terms of his security oath, he's not allowed to disclose. But when I said to him, you know, are there other videos which, if people saw them, would just blow people's socks off? And he said, yes. And more recently, in fact, just in the last few days at a conference in San Marino in Italy, Luz admitted that some of these videos are so sharp that in the detail of these objects, if they had rivets, you would see the rivets, but they oh, well. don't. <laughs> well, looks so, like you know, you're talking you, here about it. Yeah, well, I don't know if you're ever going to. I, one of the there's a there's a delicate game here, and I'll tell you what I think is going on. One of the things that people will see if they watch my documentary and read my book is that this crazy investigative journalist—that's me—is actually taking seriously the phenomenon of so-called crash retrievals. And the reason I'm doing that, when I say crash retrievals, I'm talking about retrieved non-Earth, non-human spacecraft of some kind. Yeah. And the reason I'm doing that is because my curiosity was twigged by the fact that I think in about July last year, the New York Times journalists, Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Kane, wrote the most extraordinary story that I commend to everyone to read, where they basically uh, quoted multiple sources, including two on the record, talking openly about evidence that the United States government has, has uh, been able to retrieve crashed spacecraft or landed spacecraft which is an incredible allegation. And I started asking about this when I was writing my book. And I spoke to people who work for different congressmen in the Congress and the Senate in the United States. I spoke to senators and congressmen who'd been in select briefings by people from the US Department of Defense. And I was told that they have been told in private hearings that the United States is in possession of retrieved non-human technology, including craft vehicles, yep. literally flying saucers. Now, and I won't believe that until I literally kick the tires of the craft myself. You know, yep. I mean, it's just such an incredible allegation. But a lot of very reputable people have said this to me both on the record and on background. One of the people who went on the record with me was a guy called Nat Kobitz. And I wrote him a letter, not really expecting that he'd call me back. And he did. And sadly, this wonderful man was dying of cancer when I spoke to him. But he was formerly the chief geek for the US Navy. He was the director of science and technology development for the US Navy, which is a very senior executive position 
in the US Navy. He was like their chief boffin. And I asked him after we got to know each other over a few months, I said, Nat, were you ever read into a crash retrieval program, i.e. crash retrieval of alien spacecraft? And you know what he said? Yes. He said yes. And then he said, but I was never read out of it, and so there's not a lot I can tell you. You know what I mean by read? Basically, what he's talking about is he was given the security briefing that allowed him to be told about this particular program, this particular project. And so I asked him, did you see any alien spacecraft in the possession of the United States? And he said, no. So I was a bit disappointed. But then he told me how on one occasion after he left the Navy, because he was an expert in a particular type of welding that's called electron beam welding, EBW, he was approached by the US Navy because of his security classification and flown to the legendary Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is the home of what used to be called the Foreign Technology Division. It's where America keeps all the secret technology that it's recovered from other countries around the world. And apocryphally, it's also the place where allegedly there's a car park of UFOs. Now, of course, I don't know that for sure, but you know, basically it's long been rumored that Wright-Patterson is the place where you go to find the Roswell parts and other retrieved materials. Basically the new Area well, 51. Is it too much... Yeah, so is it too much of a coincidence that um, Nat Kobitz told me that he was flown to the Foreign Technology Division of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, taken underground, and he was shown what he described to me as a large piece of bonded metals of two different types that looked to him like part of a bulkhead from some kind of craft. And he said it was incredibly light. And when he was asked to look at this metal, he was asked to assess whether it could have been bonded using the technology that he was very familiar with, electron beam welding. And he adduced that there was no way that it could have been because when he looked at it at a molecular level, at an atomic level through a microscope, he was able to see that whatever this was, it was bonded at the atomic level. Wow. Somehow two different metals had been bonded. And so he had the feeling that what he was looking at was something that was, quote, not of this world. But because he was a scientist, he was very measured and very cautious. He would never say to me that what he was holding in his hands was an alien technology. But I suspect that he suspected that it was. Yeah, you'd be very sus on that, wouldn't you? You would. You would. Oh, so many questions. (laughs) And jeez, uh, it's amazing, eh? They're just the technology these, well, beings or whatever they are, that have well over and truly over us, and we still sort of haven't developed anywhere near that yet. Well, you say beings. One of the things I really want to emphasise is I'm not saying that this is alien life. I'm not saying that because yeah. I just don't know. And that might sound like a cop out, but I think it's really important to limit ourselves to what we know. So what do we know? Let's just step back for a moment. What do we know? We know Lou Elizondo's five observables. 
And what are they? We know that there is a genuine mystery that has been acknowledged by the United States Department of Defense officially that there are objects maneuvering in our skies and we also know privately in our oceans and also in orbit that are doing hypersonic speeds, tens of thousands of kilometers an hour. In the case of the USS Nimitz incident, I think it was about 166,000 miles an hour. Um, they're also capable of instantaneous movement. Literally, there's no wind up, there's no revving the engine. It's literally instantaneous in the blink of an eye. Yeah. What it's also capable of is being able to adjust course without changing velocity, which is incredibly important because, as you'd know, any aircraft sustains G-forces when it turns. And so when David Fravor, who I've spoken to, was manoeuvring his fighter jet, spiralling down towards what he eventually saw looking like a, a gigantic tic-tac peppermint, a, cil a cylinder, a white cylinder hovering over the surface of the ocean. He was spiraling down. He couldn't just instantaneously move from 28,000 feet where he was to the surface of the ocean. He had to take his craft down very slowly because even the top fighter jets in the world, like an F-18, an F-22 or an F-35, they fall apart if you go beyond about uh, 17 G-forces. But more importantly, the human body, even when wearing a G-suit, can only really sustain about 9 or 10 Gs before passing out. Yeah. And the objects that were seen on the USS Nimitz that day, guess what G-forces they were pulling? They were pulling up to 12,000 Gs. That's the estimated G-forces. That's G -forces. incredible. Any human being that sustained that kind of G-force would literally be soup. Yeah. The craft that they were flying in would literally just disintegrate. You know, there's no way a plane could sustain that kind of G-force. Oh, absolutely not. So you've got an incredible technology capable of extraordinary speeds and maneuvers. And, and what's fascinating is this is official. This is admitted. I've spoken to U.S. Defense Department of officials who've admitted that this is real. There's also creepier stuff about the phenomenon. It's capable of extraordinary stealth. It's able to hide itself instantaneously, to literally disguise itself from a radar, to literally make itself disappear. Stealth technology, the likes of which actual invisibility that we just don't have. Um, it's also transmedium. Uh, these objects have been seen coming in and out of water and moving under the surface of the ocean at quite literally hundreds of knots. I've spoken to submariners, both from our Navy, the Australian Navy, and also from foreign navies, who've told me how these objects have actually been recorded moving at hundreds of knots underwater. And these objects have also, when we're talking about transmedium, They've also been detected in space. I've spoken to people who've seen data that shows these objects coming from deep space and moving in front of what are called the DSP satellites, the Defence Support Program satellites that the United States uses as an early warning system to warn the, the United States military of impending nuclear attack or ballistic missile attack. And these satellites that are actually recorded 
from sites here in Australia, like Pine Gap, they are seeing objects not just moving across the satellite uh, data sensors, they are also changing velocity. They are clearly intelligently controlled. They're changing course direction. So you've got transmedium vehicles moving in and out of our atmosphere, in and out of our oceans. That's, what, that's another one of the five observables. Yeah. And the other observable that's really fascinating is that whatever this technology is, and it is a technology, and, and people I've interviewed have used terms like craft or vehicle, they definitely believe that these objects are intelligently controlled and that's the game changer, these objects are also capable of, it is increasingly believed, manipulating what we see. The idea is, and I, I don't know whether any of your listeners, uh, when they've had their experiences, they've often thought about the incident only days later. It's only kind of occurred to them about three or four days later or weeks later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, one of the guys I interviewed for my documentary was a lovely man called Nikolai Gordovich, and he only remembered the extraordinary sighting that he had near Northwest Cape. About two years later, when he was at a dinner party and people were sitting around drinking wine, talking about UFOs, because there'd been a whole spate of UFO sightings over the town of Exmouth, where he was operating as a school teacher. Yep. And time and time again, when I interview people, they talk about how they feel weird. There's a kind of a weird feeling that they, they have it going across them. And so people might be interested to know that, and again, the skeptics will absolutely hate this, but people will be interested to know that there is evidence to support the claim that the undersecretary for the US Defense Department was briefed or at least there was preparation made for him to be briefed about how the phenomenon is capable of manipulating human perception and consciousness and that the objects that we think we're seeing are often not what is actually there. So could it be that while we're seeing black triangles or spherical tic-tacs today, Back in the 19th century, they were seeing uh, airships, literally sailing ships in the sky. And back in religious times, in the book of Ezekiel, they talk about winged chariots. So could it be, and in the Vimana, the Hindu and uh, Sanskrit texts, they, they talk about um, glowing objects. You know, is the, is the phenomenon manifesting itself to people in different ways by manipulating human consciousness and perception? And is it screwing with our ability to even recall those incidents? Because, frankly, it's perhaps, perhaps it's trying to distract us. Perhaps it's trying to hide itself. Perhaps it doesn't want to be found. Hmm. But the evidence is overwhelming, as I, as I used for the title of my book, it's there in plain sight. And that's why I called my book what I called it. Yeah, because, it's fitting. Uh, to me, the thing that leaps out at me is that if you look, the evidence is there. And it's always been there in plain sight. Definitely. 
It's sort of like as if they um, they've made it sort of like adapted to our modern times, like you're saying, like chariots in the sky. There's back in those days, there when you know chariots were a common thing, or turned to ships, like uh, sailing ships in the sky. It's like as if they're sort of adapted in time with our uh, moderate, uh, modern perceptions. Well, I had the privilege at one stage for the Sunday program when I was working on that show for Channel 9 about 20 years ago. I travelled to the Gulf of Carpentaria and uh, we were up there doing a story about a mining company that was having a battle with a, a young Aboriginal activist called Murundu Yana, who, a bit of a scallywag, but at the same time, somebody who would be a great leader for his people one day. A really interesting, charismatic guy. But we were up in the Territory for a long time and we were at one stage flying in a helicopter uh, with an Aboriginal fellow who was essentially the other side of the argument. He was a, a really respected elder from the Aboriginal community called Blue Bob. He was as dark as the Ace of Spades. He was amazing. He was so dark. And um, he he could use the Dreamtime stories, the oral history of the Aboriginal people in that area to find the sacred sites that the mining company were not allowed to touch. And so he could literally navigate the landscape. And so we actually sat in the back of the chopper and filmed him doing it. And you could almost see the geologists pulling their hair out because every time he pointed out a, a sacred site, which was often just a lump of rock or a rise in the ground, yep. they'd pull their hair out because that was the very point where their very, very detailed geophysical, geomagnetic imaging had told them that were probably rare minerals. And time and time again for hours, this guy was basically showing up the incredibly sophisticated sensor systems of this mining company. And, and showing them where they couldn't dig because these were sacred sites to the, uh, the dreamtime myths of the Aboriginal people. And one of the things we did was we stopped for the night at a beautiful billabong in the middle of the Gulf of Carpentaria. It was such a rich experience. And this beautiful man sat there, as Aboriginal people must have done for 40,000, 50,000 years, and told us some of his oral history. And I asked him about UFOs because you couldn't help but do that. And one of the things I don't think we realise in Australia is the rich oral history of Aboriginal communities in this country. Because we're literally sitting there under this beautiful starlit sky. It's just literally an absolute billiard table of, of stars just oh, pouring their light over us. And we've got a fire going. And I said to him, I said, what about UFOs? And he laughed he, and he talked about the Min Min lights, which the European settlers first saw in the 1850s, which are these orb lights that manifested themselves, not only to the settlers, but also to Aboriginal people. Yeah. And the Aboriginal people, they, they think of them as the spirits of their people. And he also then started talking about the Wanjana and the Wanjana people. And the, these are these beautiful images that you often see in Aboriginal rock art of humanoid figures with, well, if you like, kind of like a helmet around their head. And they're on rock art all over Australia, and they are very much part of the Dreamtime mythology. And when I say mythology, I don't mean to discredit it. I mean the stories, and some yeah. of which are true, most of which are true. And often, as I was saying from the sacred site story I gave you, often far more accurate than our own technology. 
And he told me that the Wanjana were essentially sky people and that it was part of the mythology that these, these humanoids came from the sky. And if you think about it, if we have been visited by an alien species, if they've come down in craft, that kind of account, that kind of description of the sky people, the Wanjana, is probably how it would be recorded in the mythology of a, a nomadic people with a rich cultural history. Yeah. And I just found it breathtaking to talk to this guy. And, you know, all over the world, it's everywhere. I mean, I've, I've spoken to people in Peru and Chile and El Salvador and uh, Europe and Russia and France. And it's amazing. Everywhere you go, there is this phenomenon of people seeing anomalous, unexplained objects. And how arrogant are we to think that we can just dismiss this phenomenon preemptively by asserting that, well, because there was a strange cloud in the area at the time, that must be the explanation. And indeed, in many ways, I've, I've been taking on some of the skeptics because I, I, whilst I don't see myself as a UFO or a UAP activist or advocate, I do think science is often dishonest. I think it's often almost deliberately misleading in the way that it contrives to misinterpret data. You know, when you've got, as you've got at the Westall school sighting, Westall High School, 6th of April, 1966, over 200 people school children, adults, teachers, local market gardeners. They're all looking up in the sky and they see three elliptical metallic disks. And the incredible thing is, and this is the thing that was a real turning point for me with that case, it's one of Australia's most important UFO sightings. I'd always assumed that the explanations that had been offered were a government explanation. I'd always assumed that the claims that it was a, a research balloon were explanations that had been offered up by the government as often happens you know it was a weather balloon you know go away leave us alone it was a weather balloon but in fact i think conspicuously nobody has ever from any government agency despite repeated requests ever sought to explain what it was that over 200 people saw at the westall high school on the 6th of april 1966 at around 10 30 in the morning in broad daylight. Yeah, how can you Nobody describe that? from government has ever <laughs> sought to explain it. And so the only people who've offered explanations are sceptics who've suggested that because there were American secret testings going on of nuclear radiation over the South Pole using highball balloons, a particular type of high-altitude balloon, that must be it. And look, I found that remotely plausible until I spoke directly to literally dozens of the witnesses and I suspect if the skeptics did this they'd feel the same because when you do speak to these witnesses it's quite clear they didn't see a balloon they didn't see a drone they didn't see an aeroplane they know the difference between a balloon a drone an aeroplane and whatever it was that they saw Terry Peck who I only spoke to just this evening was a young girl of 12 at Westall School that day and she saw one of these objects literally hovering and then lowering itself down behind trees in an area of bushland called the Grange. 
And she was a plucky little thing. And so she jumped the fence against the protestations of the teachers and ran and ran and ran and made it into the bushland. And when she got there, there were two other girls already there. One of them had fainted from shock. And the other one was just staring with her mouth wide open because they're hovering over the ground in front of Terry and the other girl was this obvious, mechanical, intelligently controlled craft. And the way Terry tells it, it had purpley lights underneath, flickering underneath. And as she and her friend watched, it raised itself to about 30 or 40 feet in the air. And then, interestingly, it it took a 45-degree position and then, bing, instantaneously disappeared into the sky, clearly moving, but just moving so fast your eye couldn't follow it. It would have been absolutely amazing and gobsmacking. Yeah, I mean... How do you dismiss something like that? No, 200 Nobody people. has. <laughs> Nobody ever has. And, and this is the thing that really gets me, is that there never has been any government explanation for this. And it's funny, because I mean, I'll, I'll tell you more, that I, I was looking for a government report, like um, a lovely fellow called Shane Ryan, who runs the Westall Facebook page, has yep. done for many years. And Shane's tried to procure any report that might have been prepared by the Defence Department or one of the precursor departments called the Department of Supply. And unfortunately, we've been told by the National Archives, and I think they're being truthful, that the report doesn't exist, that it can't be found inside government archives. Now, I was prepared to accept that. I was prepared to accept that until... By complete fluke, and this is so serendipitous, it almost gives me a shiver up my spine. I was approached by a source, somebody I've known for a very long time, who worked at a very high level in a very important agency in the federal government. I can't say which. And that person contacted me because they'd become aware of the fact, through a newsletter that was being circulated, that I was doing a story on the Westall sighting. And he said, why are you doing a story on Westall? And I said, why are you interested? And he said, well, because my father was the guy who wrote the secret report for the Department of Supply. And I said, what? I said, that report doesn't exist. And he said, I can tell you it does because my dad wrote it. And uh, he'd seen his father write it. And in fact, he'd witnessed his father being picked up in a black Humber for several days and being driven off to Westall every day to go and do his field work, to research it with the local military and the local police. And then every night he'd come back and he'd sit on the kitchen table and he'd talk about it with the family, especially the wife. The young son was picking up all this information. He stored it away in his head. and He knew that his father had a copy of the report Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In his house for many, many years until he died because he was so profoundly ex- uh, excited and shocked by what he'd seen. And this is the thing that amazes me because I was brought to the slow realization that every now and then it's so unlikely, but every now and then there really are things called cover-ups. And this is one of those classic times when I really do think there was a cover-up. I think the government's avoided talking about this issue and it's probably long forgotten about now. But one of the things that really astounded me when we tracked him down was to meet the science teacher who was one of the people on the quadrangle at the school that day in April 1966, a guy called Andrew Greenwood. And 54 years later, Andrew Greenwood told me in interview how he was threatened. He was actually threatened with the loss of his job as a teacher if he continued talking about the Westall sighting. And apparently a man from the Air Force and a man from a civilian agency knocked on his door late one night and basically made a threat that they would say he was a drunk and drinking on the job if he continued publicising the Westall story. And so for many, many years he was terrified and he kept quiet about it. But now in his 70s he's, he's just bolshy about it and very, very angry that somebody from the Australian government 54, 55 years ago tried to threaten him to keep quiet about what he saw. Yeah. I don't know if you, um, when you were talking to people in regards to the Westall there, there was a story there, I can't remember where I listened to it too, but um, one of the girls that touched the craft and she got taken away and disappeared. And the girls yeah, went back to I the house you, there. I've, yeah, I've, I've investigated that story. I, I, can't, I can't tell you why I know what I know, but I can tell you... I've investigated that story and I am satisfied that it's a conflation of different stories. And yes, there was a girl who fainted and was taken away in uh, an ambulance, but it had nothing to do with the Westall sighting. And uh, people I know have engaged with that woman who's now a grown woman and uh, her family did move out of the area. Uh, that's, I'm sure, the other thing you were going to tell me. But there's no conspiracy behind it. I've, I've been able to happily satisfy myself that there is a benign, prosaic explanation for why that young girl disappeared from the school and why she was taken away in an ambulance. Uh, okay, because more to the story. Sorry, uh, not more to the story there. Um, the people, the girls, reckon they went to the house there to find the girl, see if she was all right or not, but it's a totally different family and saying that they never lived there. Yeah, again... 
again, I've spoken to some of the people that actually went to the house, and uh, the story is somewhat different. Again, as often happens, and this is not in any way to criticise these witnesses, as often happens, stories get conflated, they get mixed up over the years. And there was a group of girls that went to the young girl's house, not immediately after, but weeks after, and the family had moved, as the family always planned to do. She'd left school, and she moved to Queensland, and that's all I can okay. say. Or is it all part of the cover-up? So, yeah. look, <laughs> no, 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 no. Look, uh, look to be honest with you, uh, I, 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 I'm very reluctant to, as, to assume a cover-up, okay? Yeah. In this case, I do believe there was a cover-up at Westall, but I don't think it was the cover-up that a lot of people are talking about. You know, this young girl... There's a perfectly innocent explanation for why she disappeared from the school, and it's nothing to do with a UFO sighting. But there was a girl, and her name is Terry Peck, and I spoke to her as recently as an hour ago. There was a girl who walked into the Grange and literally held her hand up, and she could feel the heat from this metallic craft that was hovering above the ground noiselessly. She could see the purple lights on its underside, that's a really credible sighting. And yeah. she's adamant about what she saw. So, you know, you don't, you know, we, we've got to be very, very careful because I mean, I, one of the first things I heard was that story about the girl who disappeared from the school shortly after the sighting. And it's, it's one of those kind of stories that takes off like 9-11 conspiracies and, you know, yep. Tower 7 conspiracies. And what I've tried to do as much as possible in my research is chase down those stories and... I soon discovered and soon learned that there's really nothing to that conspiracy theory. But that's not to detract from the fact that there really has been. I mean, we don't need to make up conspiracies because there really was a conspiracy. There really was a cover-up in the Westall story. Just like I assume there was a cover-up in the other issue that I think is an incredibly important sighting where there's been multiple sightings is in a place called the Harold E. Holt naval communications station right up in northwest cape in wa far western wa literally in the middle of nowhere it's just on the edge of the outback there's red dirt blowing through the town it's on the edge of the ningaloo reef a little town called exmouth and it's the scene of a whole series over many decades of anomalous sightings by quite literally now i've spoken to probably over a hundred people they're still calling me people calling me from all over the territory, uh, all over the WA area. They've got their own stories about what they saw in that part of the world. And all of them involve glowing orbs, metallic craft, triangular vehicles, clearly hovering over this very sensitive secret military facility, which interestingly enough has a link to, and I think this is significant, nuclear weapons. It's a facility which has gigantic aerial arrays vlf very low frequency arrays it's like something out of a science fiction movie you you come out of the desert and you're suddenly confronted with these massive aerials going hundreds of meters up into the air right on the edge of the indian ocean and back in 1966 when this facility was built by the americans on australian soil the public in australia weren't told a lot about what it was for but It turns out what it was for was very low frequency is used to communicate with American submarines underwater, 
American nuclear missile armed submarines underwater. And in the event of nuclear war, those submarines, which are positioned in the Indian Ocean, would be told by the VLF signals to come slightly closer to the surface where they could receive the command codes for the launch of their nuclear missiles. And so in October 1973, when one of these sightings is recorded in the Australian archives, there was a fireman called Bill Lynn who was locking up the officers club in this base. He was responsible for the, you know, keeping the base secure and making sure there were no fire risks. And just on dusk, just at the very moment that sunset was about to arrive, the sky is still very clear. It's still quite bright. And he looks up and he sees a black sphere, a clear, solid, when I say clear, I mean obvious, a, a solid black sphere hovering over or near the base. And he drew a picture of it. He sat down and he sketched a picture of it on the bonnet of his um, truck. And he went home and he told his daughter about it, uh, Sue, Sue Foreman, who's uh, done an interview with me and still remembers it very vividly today. And he thought he was the only one. And, we, you know, his file was put into the Defence Archives and stored away in the Australian Defence Archives. But contemporaneously with his sighting, at the same time as his sighting, there was also a probable deputy commander of the base, a lieutenant commander, an American officer at the base, a guy called Moya or Meyer, also looked up and saw the same object. And both of these gentlemen made a sightings report to the Australian Air Force that, that was found inside the Defence Department's files. And these are just some of the sightings that have taken place, a whole series of sightings that have taken place over this area that go back over decades that are recorded in Defence Archives. But the October 73 ones were very significant because it was a particular date in October 73 when the Arab-Israeli war was drawing to a close and the world was on the brink of nuclear war. That's, when one, of, that's one of the few occasions during the Cold War when we came really close to the launch of nuclear missiles to nuclear Armageddon. And, and Exmouth in WA would have been at the very centre of that because it was where the command for the submarines lurking in the Indian Ocean would have gone out via those huge aerial arrays. And contemporaneously, within hours of an order being given by the White House, by Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State in the White House, within hours of that order being given to go from... Uh, DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3, Defence Condition 4 to DEFCON 3, which is the highest peacetime nuclear alert military status, means the entire US military is on a war footing. Within hours of that order being given, the sphere suddenly appears over the base. And I can tell you, Ant, there are people who I've spoken to in the US military who think that it is no coincidence that these objects seem to manifest themselves over facilities that have links to nuclear weapons. Yeah. There's a guy called uh, Robert Hastings in the United States who's a brilliant man, very, very impressive man, and he's written an absolutely stunning book called UFOs and Nukes. And he single-handedly for much of the last 30 or 40 years 
since he had an extraordinary sighting on a radar scope when he was a young boy sweeping floors in an airbase in the United States, he was shown UFOs tracking across a radar screen at impossible speeds. And he realized that there really is a phenomenon that the US military is keeping quiet about that is being tracked on their sensor systems. And so he decided to devote much of his life to investigating it. And so he he decided to make a specialty of tracking down the men and indeed these days the women who work inside the intercontinental ballistic missile nuclear silos and all the facilities associated with nuclear weapons right across the United States. Hundreds of sites where nuclear weapons are stored or where they're, t- they're ready for launch, sitting in yeah. the silos, po- poised for the button to be pushed. And what he discovered was that almost every single facility across the United States and indeed at places like Northwest Cape in Australia across the world and also Pine Gap in the middle of Australia, that very important American base, all these bases have been visited by strange objects. And people I've spoken to inside the US military and um, I'm talking intelligence and defence officials have conceded to me privately that this is very real. They're quite worried about it because not only are these objects hovering over these facilities, they're actually capable, and this is one of the five observables that Lou Elizondo has talked about, they're capable of remotely tampering with technology, with human technology. They've actually switched off nuclear missile systems, or in one case, allegedly, according to a Russian general that I've had the privilege of speaking to, they've actually switched on the nuclear missile to the very point where they're literally just one button away from nuclear launch. Now, nobody knows why this is happening, but it's real. It's been so well recorded, both in official records, but also uh, by witnesses who've agreed to speak to good people like Robert Hastings. You're left in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there is a real phenomenon that is being tracked and verified by military agencies, by government investigators, and indeed uh, by private investigators like Robert Hastings. And indeed, I've seen it for myself with facilities here in Australia. I've spoken to witnesses who've seen similar phenomena here in Australia. There is an absolute sure bet link between the prevalence of UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, and nuclear weapons or facilities that are linked to nuclear weapons. It's no coincidence. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing how like we've got to appreciate these people that actually go out and get the effort out there to go and find this information, otherwise we wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, frankly, one of the things that I think will eventually have to be acknowledged is that there's been an awful lot of work done by UFO researchers that has been unfairly scorned and ridiculed by a lot of the mainstream media and commentators. There are professional trolls and debunkers out there on social media and um, in certain sections of the media and the scientific establishment who adopt extremely unscientific tones when it comes to addressing the phenomena. They're so inclined to dismiss it they're not prepared to seriously consider the possibility that, well, what many people are conceding to me inside government agencies is real. Uh, 
you know, we are, I think, on the cusp of a revelation. There is a paradigm shift happening, and it's happening as paradigm shifts often do in plain sight, and people aren't noticing it. Mm. And it's basically because there is kind of, I don't think there's some active conspiracy where there are men in black going around telling editors or executive producers of TV shows or newspapers to shut up. I just think that there's such an effective stigma and taboo that's been attached to the phenomenon that it's impossible for a lot of people in mainstream media to take the phenomenon seriously without putting woo-woo music or X-Files flying saucers on the wall behind them in the newsroom. And I, I really think mainstream media needs to wake up to itself because there's an incredible change that's happened here where, you know, you've got the American Department of Defense now formally admitting the phenomenon is real. And that, in many ways, is the beginning of what UFO researchers call disclosure. Yeah, and everyone's been waiting for that disclosure and that full-on, you know, evidence that we want. And uh, that sort of brings me back to my question there where I asked you earlier on, like, did we actually, I don't think we actually got a proper answer out of it, but did you actually find out why we didn't get the full footage or information in regards to that whole scenario with the Nimitz and the... In the oh, no, as I explained, uh, as I explained, they're, they're holding back on that information. I mean, the, the, the US Defence Department is definitely in possession of videos that, that as Lou Elizondo told me, would blow your socks off. You know, he's conceded. Lou's told me he's seen videos that are just absolutely extraordinary. Other witnesses have told me that there are videos of craft, metallic craft, clear as day, flying right beside jet fighter cockpits. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you're, you're talking about vision that is crystal clear. Now, why is the US government suppressing that information? Which I'm sure they am. Why are they doing that? I just don't know. Um, yeah, I could only speculate. I really don't know. I mean, this is the great mystery. We now know for sure that there is active cover-up happening, active suppression yeah. of the phenomenon happening. We know that unfair and unjust ridicule and stigma has been attached to the phenomenon now for at least since the end of Project Blue Book and pretty much for much of the period since the end of World War II. And I suspect, in part, for a lot of the military, it may simply be that they just don't like admitting that they have no bloody idea what it is. And that because we're spending billions of dollars on national security and defence, it's embarrassing for them to have to admit that for all of our extraordinary amounts of money that we've spent on buying the best fighters and the best missiles and the best radar systems... We are powerless against a technology that can do hypersonic manoeuvres, that can do terms on a dime, that is capable of stealth, that is capable of remotely manipulating our own technology and indeed our own consciousness and our perception. Yeah. And so could it be that it's as simple as they just don't like admitting that this is something that is better than what we've got? No, that's, that's true too. But it's a shame though, because like we but just. I do, um... I do believe though. I do believe though, Ant, that um, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there are senior officials in the U.S. military, in particular, and in the intelligence services, who know a hell of a lot more than we're being told. Oh, absolutely. And I know that 
because I'm privy to some of the things that have been said to congressional committees. Yeah. And people in Congress have been briefed about extraordinary claims. And I don't see any good reason for why the public can't be told about it. No, me neither. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's a shame that like, they, you know, they, they disclose those images to us, those videos, footage, and the scenario that happened and all that sort of stuff, but we don't get the full scenario of what happened. Like, why did it just cut off there and stuff? Like, obviously, they're trying to hold back on some vital information. I don't know what goes on there, but you know, they disclose that part, they open that part to the public, want to give us the whole damn thing. Sure. So, but, uh, mate, before we start getting to the, towards the end of the show there, mate, I've got a lot of people here who have um, some amazing questions for you, if you're open for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sure. um, first question is, the, um, in your opinion, who do you think is the most credible source of true information? So, uh, Louis Elizondo, Stephen Greer, or Bob Lazar? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't think Stephen Greer or Bob Lazar should be dismissed, but I also don't think people should rely on them. Um, there are things that Stephen Greer has said that I, I know to be inaccurate or misleading. And with Bob Lazar, I think Bob's a good person. I think he genuinely believes what he's saying. And I do think there's a possibility that he's saying the truth, but I just can't prove what he's saying is true. So uh, if I can't verify something, I can't rely on it. Um, yep. In terms of the most credible people, I think people to watch are Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, uh, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of uh, Defence in the United States. Lou Elizondo, of course, was the guy who ran the UFO program inside the Pentagon. There's been attempts by some debunkers to try and attack Lou Elizondo in particular uh, by suggesting that he wasn't really the director of ATIP or the head of a Pentagon program. And Look, that's just bullshit. I I don't know why these people do this. It's kind of like point scoring. Uh, (laughs) I I must say I kind of, I despair with UFO Twitter, frankly, because there are some numbskulls who just think it's fun to go around trolling people and playing stupid, pedantic games when these are people, Lou Elizondo, one of them, who are risking their security oaths, they're risking their careers in order for the public to know more about the phenomenon. These people are heroes. They should be acknowledged as such. Now, that's not to just glibly accept what they say. We should always be sceptical about what anyone says. But I think also the people to watch are there's meant to be another report coming from the Congress in the next few weeks, which will be a follow-up report to the preliminary UAP task force report. Um, I think you should also keep an eye out for the the congressman like Marco Rubio, the Republican senator who used to be the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and um, Mark Warner, who's the current chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, I really respect Robert Hastings, the guy that I referred to in my um, earlier interview talking about the book that he wrote, UFOs and Nukes. As for UFO commentators, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, We've got some great people here in Australia. I really recommend Keith Basterfield. He writes a fantastic blog. He's an elderly gentleman, but he's an absolutely astute observer of breaking issues in UAP research. Uh, Paul Dean, another one to watch. There's a guy called Brad Sparks over in Los Angeles who is also really impressive. 
Um, I follow The Debrief, which is a very good online news magazine that tries to cover this issue. It's patchy. Sometimes it does inconsistent stuff that um, doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, another one is uh, Mystery Wire, George Knapp, the uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada-based journalist for uh, uh, Channel 8 in Las Vegas, who also has his own online spot called The Mystery Wire. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very hard to sort of recommend to anyone that there is a sort of a definitive source, because there isn't. What you've got to do is acquire an incredibly sceptical brain and trawl. I mean, I... I monitor Twitter for UFO, UAP-related commentators. There's a really good guy in the US called Joe Mergia who goes under a Twitter tag, UFO Joe, and he's good. Um, and look, there's dozens of others. I mean, I'm sure I can keep you busy all day with names of people <laughs> who I would suggest you listen to. But I, I hope that gives your, your listeners a good guide. Yeah, definitely. I've had Paul Dean on the show there. He's an absolute encyclopedia when it comes to this sort of genre oh the man's a machine uh, I, I, he's incredible yeah <laughs> he is um so uh, next question is uh what are your thoughts on people experiencing ets uh being visited by them being taken onto the craft and being experimented on pretty simple i, I just don't know uh i've interviewed a lovely woman called melinda leslie very early in my research who's quite a famous uh alleged experiencer of what's called a my lab a military abduction now, she gives a very colourful and detailed account of multiple abductions where she can even allegedly describe the inside of some base where there's, you know, allegedly humans and aliens operating on her and doing things to her. And look, I know it sounds crazy, and part of me wants to go, it is crazy, but I can't. You know, I, I will never dismiss potential evidence. The problem that I have as a journalist is witness evidence in and of itself, especially when it's making extraordinary claims like that, I look for verification. You know, in the Westall case, for example, there are quite literally hundreds of other witnesses who corroborate what these individual witnesses that I've spoken to have told me. And these people all give a remarkably consistent and clear account of what was seen on the day. And you know, time and time again, the best UFO sightings are the ones where there is that kind of corroboration. So frankly, unless I'm with you in your bedroom when the greys come for you, it's next to impossible for me to verify the veracity of that experience. And if, as we all know, the phenomenon is, according to the US Department of Defense, allegedly capable of manipulating human perception and consciousness, how do we know what that experience is how do we know it's not disguising something even more sinister uh, so yeah i mean i, I the, the short answer is a lot of people who are experiences get the shits with somebody like me because they say ah oh, ross coulthard isn't looking at abductions he's not looking at um you know people who've had really weird experiences and i have actually looked at some very weird experiences but i can only report the ones where i can corroborate them and get independent evidence that i feel adds verification that, that gives me a sense that there really is something here that i can i can have some sense of being able to verify yeah no it's one of those things that you 
can't really believe until you experience it yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, and I feel for those people. I mean, I'm reading Ralph Blumenthal's excellent book about John Mack, Professor John Mack, who was the Harvard professor who, in the 1970s, investigated a lot of these abduction cases, and he clearly believed they were real. You know, he was genuinely concerned about the experiences that these people were having because some of them were absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything worse than being an experiencer and not having any understanding of what it was that you believe happened to you and then not being taken seriously by anyone. It must be terribly distressing. So oh, you know, my heart goes out to them. Yeah. Been ridiculed selling chronic. But um, sadly, that's the way it is. And yeah, like I said, one of those things you got to experience until you believe it. <laughs> so... Um, Next question is, uh, in your experience and investigations, does all government around the world have a mandated cease disclosure on UFA, uh, sorry, UFO, UAP, or is there an underlying law, per se, that states that no government can disclose on this matter? Um, I'm curious why most reports are always referred back to the Americans. Look, I think America's running the ship, and I think to a greater or lesser degree, some governments have actually conceded quite a bit. I've had conversations with Russian generals in recent weeks where they've actually admitted to me that the phenomenon is real and they've conceded exactly what America has conceded, that they've had enormous sightings events. They did an extraordinary 10-year uh, study in Russia where they looked at tens of thousands of cases. And in some cases, Soviet uh, jet fighters were sent up to intercept craft and if you believe the generals that I've spoken to and indeed the alleged allegations uh, made in the British Condyne report, which is the British government's investigation into the phenomenon now declassified, there were two Soviet pilots who died while attempting to intercept the phenomenon. So you can't dismiss and assert, as a lot of people do, you can't say all governments are covering up. Because frankly, I, I think the problem with the Australian government is that in the current environment, the Defence Department and indeed our intelligence services take the view that, that UAPs are not a legitimate subject for committing the resources of either the Defence or the intelligence services. And that's quite funny because I've spoken to people in defence and intelligence in the United States who are extremely interested in the issue. And there's no doubt at all that there is a, a very live and a very current monitoring of UAPs going across many countries in the world, particularly Russia, China, America, France and Britain. But Australia, I think it's essentially a cultural thing. They've got the same problem of taboo and ridicule and stigma. Australia is basically of the view that it's not really a legitimate subject for investigation. And the irony is, as I did when I started digging, I, I've spoken to people in, in our military who concede that it is real, that they are seeing anomalous phenomena, and they can't explain it. I mean, as, as recently as a couple of days ago, I had a conversation with a former Australian soldier who told me that during a military exercise, he and his patrol came across very close up a landed craft and uh, when they reported it to their superiors they were roundly interrogated for hours and hours and threatened with all manner of things if they spoke about what they saw so it's hard for me to be sure I, I don't know what's going on 
most of the time, I mean, I've, I've approached former ministers of defense. So I've, I've approached people that I've met from the intelligence services over the years. I don't think there's an active conspiracy underway to try to suppress the UFO phenomenon. I'm not persuaded that's the case. And some people may disagree with me. I do think there is an active conspiracy underway in the United States. I mean, no doubt about that. I mean, no doubt whatsoever. I do think that historically, Australian military and defence intelligence people have been involved in cover-ups, notably the Westall case and also the Northwest Cape case. But as for the current situation, I think most of the time, and we forget that generations come and go, people forget, people leave and take their secrets with them. I think most of the time, people are genuinely ignorant inside defence and intelligence services about the reality of the phenomenon. It's only when there's a sort of a mass sighting and it becomes an issue. And then, yeah, you're right. All of a sudden, the Yanks get involved. So the, the one common factor here is that the Americans have got their dirty paws over almost any interesting UFO sighting. And if you go through the UFO archives in the CIA or different defense intelligence agencies in the United States, a lot of which are publicly available, you know, there's just some gobsmacking stuff where during Operation Moondust in the 1950s, there were military retrieval operations to retrieve what are described in US government official documents as disks, sources, craft what the hell were these we still don't know the answer to that question 50 years later but things were and indeed are being recovered that are not being disclosed to the american or the indeed the international public yeah and i think you'll find too that we are um very reliant on the american on the americans information and you know we are um i just thought lost the words now but we're, we're very influenced by the Americans and we've kept out of the loop on a lot of things in that regard too. So I think that's why we rely on the Americans a lot in that regard to when it comes to UFOs and UAPs and such like that. So sure. that's my opinion on that anyway. Because Yeah, look, there have, I have seen a lot of uh, European countries that have opened up a little bit on the UFO aspect and that, but as, as um, you are saying, like, you know, the Americans get their grubby hands on everything there and sort of that's what we sort of get informed on in a sense. Yep. So, um, I, I do think. I mean, it's funny. I very rarely allege a cover-up. Journo's have got a saying: always assume a screw-up before a conspiracy. Yep. But in this case, I, I really do think there has been a conspiracy, and I, I reluctantly came to that conclusion during my research when people openly admitted to me that there was a deliberate effort to suppress the phenomenon, and it's actually manifested in government documents. Yeah. Where. You know, there were recommendations made by officials inside the CIA, the American Central Intelligence Agency, about ways to hide the phenomenon, to, to disguise discussion about flying sources from the American public, to suppress the subject matter from public debate. And the way they did this was by ridicule, stigma, scorn. Go figure. Yeah, that's been very maybe effective. That's the so way, maybe yeah, it really has. It's been incredibly effective. Yeah, um, this one's probably not something you're going to probably have too many answers on, but um, I'll ask it anyway. But uh, do you have any insight on the mission to Mars settlement in 2032 from your investigations? And are we likely to meet ETs by then? 
<laughs> I have no insights on that whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't think you I, would. I, I, t- I tell you, I, I have interviewed Elon Musk for Australia's 60 Minutes. Oh, that would And uh, uh, I'm, I'm joking when I say I think he's an alien. He, he's the most <laughs> extraordinary human being. Oh, honestly, um, um, Joe Rogan said the same thing. Uh, he's an extraordinary guy. And uh, I, I mean, I, I felt privileged to be able to spend time with him because he's a great intellect. And he's got this precocious intelligence. And if anyone's going to pull off a Mars mission, it's him. And I'm as much of a space exploration buff as I am now a UAP researcher. And I'm so excited by what Elon Musk in particular is achieving with his commercialization of space. I've always thought that the best way to lower the costs for NASA is to commercialize space, to put it out to private tender. And all of a sudden, out of left field, you get this clever dick, Elon Musk, who is absolutely brilliant. You know, you have those times where you've been in the company of somebody and you just think to yourself, my goodness, that person is really clever. He's one yeah. of those people. You know, it ha- it ha- it's happened to me very rarely in journalism. But, um, you know, I, I was doing an interview with him and I'll swear 99% of his brain was thinking about something else while he very ap- aptly and carefully answered my questions. You know, he's just got this prodigious intellect and this way of thinking, this very lateral way of thinking that is really clever. Yeah, no, he's an absolutely amazing person, especially like coming up, developing, reusing um, rockets and such like that. That's incredible. That's a breakthrough for sure. Oh, it's, isn't it exciting? And I, I was watching the most recent landing of the booster fro, from the rocket that took the uh, the three tourist astronauts up the other day. And uh, it's just awesome to think of that kind of guided technology. You know, it's, it's something the size of a skyscraper landing on a concrete pad or in some cases on a pad in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. It's, it's a breathtaking achievement. And it is. it's something, interestingly, that... Uh, public enterprise government was never able to achieve and so if if elon musk can achieve that with rocket technology clearly something is using anti-gravitic technology and this is the implication this is the awesome implication of what we're talking about here with these anomalous objects whatever they are their craft their vehicles They're intelligently controlled and they're doing maneuvers and speeds that are best explained by what at the moment is only a theoretical possibility, anti-gravitic propulsion. Something out there has technology that is absolutely mind-blowing. And imagine what it means for that excitement of human exploration if we're able to crack that technology. That's what excites me, and that's the, that's the big issue behind the UAP phenomenon. And for, frankly, I think that's the gold at the end of the rainbow for whatever country cracks that technology first. Yep. Well, they're going to have a massive advantage over the world then when it comes to that. Hey, Ant, I mean, no, I mean no discourtesy, but I really do need to wind up soon. So no, that's uh, fine, mate. I think there's only a couple more questions there if we can try and smash through them. Um, uh, one of them there is, uh, have you uncovered any reports where the ET craft has shot down any one of Earth's military? Uh, 
well, yes, I did mention earlier that there is a reference in the British government's official Condine, C-O-N-D-I-G-N report. I think it's volume four or volume five of the Condine report, which is a massive document. You can find it online. And there is a reference to British interviews with Russian officials who admit that at least two of their craft were brought down during engagements with UAP. That's a phenomenal allegation, and it's one that, yet again, the sceptics ignore. Um, There's also, whilst it's not craft being brought down, there are quite alarming and concerning revelations at a place called Calaras in Brazil, allegations of human beings being attacked by craft with beams of light and in some cases suffering terrible injuries or worse being killed and there's a filmmaker by the name of James Fox who's a friend of mine and a friend of many of us here in Australia who um, made that brilliant movie The Phenomenon. James is currently in Brazil and he's doing a documentary about the Calaras incident And what's unique and what's interesting about that incident is that there are military officials who are witness to these sightings and to these terrible injuries and deaths that were sustained. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. So I look forward to going and bringing that one out. That's going to be a good little um, documentary. I think a lot of people will be curious on that one. Um, So anyway, uh, next question. Uh, You've mentioned the future... Hang on, sorry. You've mentioned the future human theory in more recent times as a possibility... Is there anything you can share that led to you talking about and considering this specifically? One of your one of your listeners is a very astute listener. He's <laughs> quite right, or she's quite right. Um, I am increasingly drawn to the explanation that was first propounded by Jacques Vallée, one of the godfathers, grandfathers of ufology. He suggested that the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, does not explain everything that is known about the phenomenon. And I can't say why, and I'm sorry to be mysterious, because my investigations are ongoing. But I am talking to people in a position to know who tell me that what the intelligence is behind some, possibly all of the phenomenon, but certainly some of the phenomenon, is future human. And that it's future human with a particular focus on uh, use or misuse of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. And that's really all I can say right now. But watch the space because there will be more. Yeah, well, I think you just already half answered the next question from this person. Um, so, uh, what do you make of the of some of the more obscure? Ph- uh, uh, start again. What do you make of some of the more obscure known phenomena, like orbs, min min lights, and other similar reported encounters where the object had a more curious organic type of intelligence? Well, once again, again, it's impossible to be definitive. I mean, I can say that it's a real phenomenon. I've, I've spoken to multiple witnesses who've seen min-min lights, who've seen orbs. I've even spoken to defence officials who tell me that they've been aware of reports by their security guards of orbs in one of our most sensitive defence installations, Pine Gap, the joint US... Australian facility near Alice Springs in the centre of Australia. 
Uh, I don't know what these orbs are, but whatever they are, they're anomalous, they're intelligent, and they're capable of, in some cases, penetrating solid, solid surfaces. And if you, if you believe the advice that's been given to the Undersecretary of the US Department of Defense, they're also capable of meddling with human technology. Yeah, I guess um, what you're referring to that, that um, uh, what did you call it? I've forgotten what you called it now. So then um, it uh, interacts with your sight, so you're not seeing things correctly, sort of thing. Yeah, capable of um, manipulating human perception. And That's the one. <laughs> That's trying to think of the right words then. <laughs> um, all right, so two more questions for you, um, and then that'll be it. Uh, okay, uh, here we go. If uh, during any of your conversations with high-ranking defense officials, was it ever mentioned to you if they had a theory as to why activity is so high lately, so much so that Navy pilots are encountering them daily? Well, you're certainly right that Navy pilots are certainly having more frequent sightings. The best way I can explain this is it, it has been put to me that the phenomenon is manifesting itself far more deliberately and far more overtly than it has done for a long time. There were, as you would know from historical reports, a lot of mass sightings that took place over the US during the 1940s and the 1950s, where the phenomenon was manifesting itself and being very, very overt. In fact, there was a flyover of, over Washington, which has still never been adequately explained. You know, on two separate weekends, there were extraordinary sightings of multiple craft tracked on radar, and it remains a mystery. It was acknowledged to remain a mystery by Project Blue Book. Um, but yes, it's manifesting itself more obviously at the moment. And again, I'm sorry, but it would just be speculation on my part as to why that's happening. All I can do is confine myself to the facts and say, yes, it is happening. There are people, of course, like Bob Salas, uh, the former Minuteman silo commander, who believe that what's happening is the phenomenon is trying to warn us of impending catastrophe, that you know, as kiddies are playing with matches and uh, benevolent superiors are concerned that we're doing the wrong thing by playing with nuclear weapons. And indeed, we probably are. I mean, I, I'm alarmed. It's funny, I've spoken to an awful lot of um, military and uh, intelligence officials as a journalist over the last 35, 36 years while I've been working covering terrorism and wars for Channel 9, Channel 7, different media networks and the thing that really shocks me is my sources are saying to me increasingly not if but when there's going to be conflict you know there's kind of a grim acknowledgement at the moment that the world is slowly inexorably drifting towards conflict and frankly no war is ever a good war uh, you know, wars are horrible things. I've seen yeah. wars up close and they're horrible. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing little children who've lost their homes or had bits blown off their bodies because of wars. There's no such thing as a good war. I think the last moral war was the Second World War. But the, the difficulty we face is that there are people telling me that war is inevitable and a conflagration of some sort is coming. 
and I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I've got friends and family who say that I'm excessively pessimistic, but uh, um, too many people have said too many things to me, especially about an increasingly bellicose China. And there's a risk of such a terrible risk of an escalation if China does what everybody thinks they're going to do and uh, tries to take back Taiwan, which it regards as Chinese territory. Yeah. And I suppose in a sense, too, we've got to be somewhat thankful, too, with these um, crafts, beings, whoever, whatever they are, by switching off these nukes back in the day there, otherwise we would be obliterated. So, Well, I don't think it's war. a coincidence. I mean, I, you know, I, I do think there's something to this. There is definitely a link between nuclear facilities and the phenomenon. It takes an undue interest. Uh, sorry, it yeah. takes a disproportionate influence, in interest in facilities that have connections to nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, and, and that's never been explained. And I'm sure, I mean, I, and people have speculated to me from, from different parts of the world, they've suggested to me that, you know, there's a benevolent intelligence that's trying to discourage us from misusing these weapons. But frankly, mate, I just don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I don't have the answer to that question. Yeah. No, that's fine, mate. Uh, but like, so last question. Um, so uh, were you hesitant to take this on in your fear of the uh, destroying your career and reputation? <laughs> well, it was really funny. There was a little shit from a newspaper down in Melbourne recently who, for political reasons, took a, took a swipe at me and said that Ross Coulthard's career is, um, is so low at the moment that he's reduced to writing books on UFOs. And uh, as you can see, I'm pissed off with them because it was a really snide, quite unkind, and in fact, quite unjustified attack. And it was the only attack that I've suffered in the entire time that I've been researching, writing, and publishing, and publicizing my book. And I've been quite heartened by that. And it's really interesting because it's very, very hard for people to attack somebody like me for writing a book about UFOs when... I can say, but the New York Times is writing exactly what I'm writing. Yeah. The Washington Post is writing exactly what I'm writing. Eminent newspapers in the United States, eminent public officials, former President Obama, former President Clinton, uh, former President Trump have all talked about the reality of the phenomenon. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, admissions being made by senior intelligence official James Woolsey, former head of the CIA, John Ratcliffe, former director of national intelligence. People are openly admitting that the phenomenon is real and that it is worthy of further investigation. So, yeah, you know, there's going to be somebody who takes a swipe at me along the way, but I'm a big boy. I once had a bikey boss threaten to chainsaw my head off. He didn't do that, <laughs> thank God. Uh, but, you know, it? the bottom line is it comes with the job. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't like the fact that you're doing a story about something that they're annoyed about. And uh, one thing that I've noticed with the UAP phenomenon is there are a lot of armchair experts, debunkers, trolls who just love to sit back and point fun and take the shit. And you know what? I just don't care because this is real. It's kind of irrelevant. I think one of the reasons they're getting so frustrated is because they've realized how irrelevant they are. That debate is over. The era where you could mock and ridicule and stigmatize this subject by treating it as a taboo is well and truly over. It's their hang-up, guys, not ours. 
Yeah. And that's uh, probably a probably a good pretty good place to end it, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Mate, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here, mate, and taking the time here, asking people's questions and telling us a good uh, good evaluation of what your whole experience has been with um, investigating these UAPs. Mate, it's absolutely incredible. It's a real pleasure, Anthony. And, uh, you know, obviously, if anybody out there has interesting sightings or events or information from the inside that they want me to know about, they can contact me at rosscoultart.com, R-O-S-S-C-O-U-L-T-H-A-R-T.com. Or my book, you can get a copy of my book or you can read about my book at www.inplainsight-book.com. And uh, if you just Google my name on Twitter, you'll find me on Twitter as well. I'm really interested in engaging with people and hearing more. I'm really keen to keep on investigating this phenomenon. There is vast amounts of information rolling in the door. And I promise you, I will keep on prodding a stick at this subject matter as long as it's still fun. Oh, I hope so, mate, because uh, we, we sort of rely on people like you to go and sort of bring this whole aspect out into the real world. And, um, you know, the public do try hard to try and bring this out, but we obviously need that bigger public figure to go and bring it right out in the open and show it for what it is. Well, you're very kind, but I think indeed organisations like yours and podcasts like yours are just as important because in the end, the only thing that's going to make a difference is raising public awareness that the phenomenon is real and people need to rattle the cage. If people want this to be a political issue, they need to write to their defence minister because if the Defence Minister gets one or two letters a year about UAPs, he's not going to care. But if they get a thousand letters about UAPs in a week, they're going to start caring. And people don't seem to realise there's enormous power invested in you as a listener, in you as a researcher, in you as an experiencer or a witness. It's important for you to get on the phone, get on the letters. It's really important actually to put it in writing rattle the cage because the old political maxim is so true the wheel that squeaks gets the grease so if you want something done about uaps if you want the australian government to start focusing on the issue more seriously i know for a fact that they're seeing intelligence from their five eyes uh, allies that are telling them the phenomenon is real i know for a fact that they're collecting data on the phenomenon at some of our most sensitive defence installations. So rattle the cage. Let's get them interested. Absolutely. Let's band together and get this done. Mate, thank you again, mate. I look forward to bringing, uh, seeing what you're bringing out next. And um, by all means, mate, all the best in this time. And um, All the best yeah. to you, Anthony, and all the best to your listeners. Thank you very, very much for giving me this opportunity to speak to you all. No, thank you for your time, mate. Thank you very much, Lee. Cheers, mate. See you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.